Good evening. I'm Carlo Gabler, and I'm delighted to be able to welcome you to the Irish Cultural Centre's Digital Literary Festival. The centre is based in Hammersmith in London, and for the past 25 years has delivered to its patrons the most diverse and august and marvellous Irish cultural and educational programme outside of Ireland. The festival comprises a, a series, a sequence of interviews featuring some of the most successful writers and authors in contemporary Irish writing, discussing what they write. This evening, I am talking to a writer and broadcaster and I think we can say anthologist. I think that's another term that appears on her CV, Sinead Gleeson. Sinead Gleeson, good evening. Good evening, Carla, how are you? I'm fine and dandy. Nice to see you. You too. I thought I would start by just asking you about you, how you tumbled into the world of the word, how you became a indefatigable, diligent and uh, consummate reader, consumer of literature. Tell us about that. Um, well, I, personally, like most people, I was a reader when I was very young, a kind of voracious and uh, omnivorous reader. I read all sorts of things. You know, I didn't graduate to the, to the literary stuff till I was maybe a teenager, but I, I, I read from very young. And as I've written about in Constellations, I spent a lot of time in hospital, a lot of time immobile, so a lot of time pretty bored and pre-internet. So books are an ideal um, filler of the void for that kind of stuff. So I, I, I read an insane amount and I, I, books be kind of sort of like an extra limb I couldn't imagine going anywhere not just with one book but with a backup book in my bag in case I ran out I was that sort of reader so I was always interested in books and then I, my, my career ended up in journalism so a different aspect of words I guess but um, and I wrote a little bit about books here and there but primarily was a, a music writer as you know music and, and books were the things that sort of kept me going through those teenage years so I was interested in music I was interested in books and um, I think in terms of I started doing reviews and writing bits and pieces again while always still reading um, and the first anthology I edited was, was in 2012 uh, an anthology called Silver Threads of Hope which was actually Anne Enright suggested me as the editor for that, that. and I hadn't done that but I, I did I read a lot of short stories I, I had been a fan I had studied English in college we studied the short story and I, I thought I'd kind of like the idea of that excavation and I didn't know that that would only be the beginning of many anthologies really so yeah I've always, I've always been I think you can't be a, a writer without being a, a reader and again I, I slowly phased the music part and moved more towards the book so it just became whether that was in broadcasting or in in um in terms of being a critic or you know getting these anthologies off the ground so I my, my world the last few years has certainly orbited very specifically around books. Mm. You certainly can't be a writer unless you read because to read is to write in a curious way. Uh, your your childhood home was it a was it full of books? Did you get the books from the library? 
Uh, I there were some books in the house. Uh, my mother read, but there wouldn't have been very kind of literary stuff in the house. Um, our, my mother was a massive Catherine Cookson fan, and I didn't actually read any of those. But my dad was really interested in something that I was really interested in, which was ghost stories and the supernatural. So we had a lot of actual anthologies. I think the first anthologies I ever encountered in my life were probably in the house when I was a kid. So these used to be these Irish tales of terror, Scottish tales of terror, you know, those kind of ones. And uh, Alfred Hitchcock had a couple, Bar the Doors, Ghostly Gallery, all with brilliant Fontana, you know, spooky sci-fi kind of covers or psychedelic covers even. So I read it. I did read a lot of short stories and I did read a lot of that. So, but I always the library. I mean, I remember the library being on crutches and, and walking the, the two miles to the library and the two miles back on the crutches. So, so desperately did I want to get down there. So yeah, I've always been, I was always a library member. I was always in the library and I was never without a book. So there were some in the house and when there wasn't, I was, you know, I'd save up or I was given money. I had an amazing godmother who always bought me books and the two of us used to love uh, going to like garden fate sales of work and the first thing we'd make it my dad had head for the records and we'd make a beeline for the uh for the the, the book stand and I always buy love second on bookshop still for that reason the idea of finding a weird strange folio um you know all books are wonderful when you buy them you bring them home but there's something about the the sort of the second hand and the history and yeah I love it you mentioned at the start of the conversation that you were an omnivorous reader you, you mentioned um, Catherine Cookson, for instance, just now, and, and these um, anthologies of gothic or supernatural stories. And then something happens to people when they read, which is they suddenly become aware of categorization, that there's different kinds of fiction and that some kinds of fiction have more weight or status than other kinds. When and how did that happen to you? Uh, I, I guess, I mean, you get a little bit of it in school in terms of what you're reading. You, you know, there's your Shakespeare and drama and then there's the kind of the novels you're reading are specific kind of novels. I mean, it's very different now where you see, uh, you know, work like people like Louise O'Neill makes it onto the curriculum as it should. But it was a very specific kind of stream, I, I, I think, of literary writing that ended up being on the course in school. Um, I, again, I talk about the anthologies in terms of the, the, the Gus Martin edition of Soundings, which I did in school, which was short stories and or which was poetry. I only had one woman in it, which was Emily Dickinson. And uh, that information was put in my back pocket for later on when I started to do the two old female anthologies. Um, so I think maybe when I was a teenager, you start, you, you, you know, you have the Enid Blyton and then you go on to the Agatha Christie or you read some sci-fi, you read gothic and horror and stuff and then you know you get to Wuthering Heights in school and I think then I, it was then you sort of started to do the, I attempted Ulysses the first time I think it was about 16 and um, was probably trying to impress somebody and I, I didn't get on that well with it at that point but then I went to the other Joyce you know I went to um, Portrait of the Artists and, and Dubliners and read them quite young and I realised but you do you do that, 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 one of the things in this book I hope in that there's a, for a long time and it's been said to me about other anthologies, not necessarily ones I've edited, that, you know, it tends to be quite literary work that gets into anthologies. And I find that more and more problematic as I uh, as I continue with this kind of work, that there is there is a lot of snobbery around about writing. I mean, I say that as somebody who's primarily reads literary fiction or work in translation, it's just what I like to read. I can read everything, but I don't just read work like that. I do read, I hope, more broadly than that. So I think it was probably my teens. And then by the time I studied English and history at UCD. And it, well, the time I got to that point, it was, you know, it was all about Virginia Woolf. That's what it went mm. finally or seminar was. And I was very much in that camp, I think. We should um, um, mention to people watching this podcast that the, this book is uh, your, actually technically your fourth anthology, The Art of the Glimpse, a uh, hundred Irish stories. But mm. before we get to it, I'd like to talk about the earlier anthologies because I'm quite curious to know whether 
anthologizing, and you also wrote constellations as well. Um, I'm curious to know if anthologizing is something that one, as one does it, one changes the way that one organizes the material and makes the choices that one makes. Tell me about the um, first, the, the, long, the long gaze back, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, again. Um, when did you put that together? It was published in 2015. So I was working on it from maybe a year and a half. I was asked to think in 2013 to do it. So after Silver Threads of Hope had come out, which had been published by New Island. And it, it came about, it, you know what? I, I, I tell the story, I've told it many times. And it's one of those things that if it had been a different day or I'd been standing in a different part of a room, the book might not have happened. And the story is that I went out to, to New Island to see Owen Purcell, um, who had commissioned Silver Threads of Hope. And we were chatting and over his shoulder in the room, I spotted an anthology that I love um, called Cutting the Night in Two, which is edited by the wonderful Evelyn Conlon, uh, a great Monaghan writer. And she had done this anthology in 2001. And I was a young journalist at the time, was given it to review and I loved it. And what shocked me at the time is I hadn't seen an all-female anthology. I, I know now that they existed obviously in the 70s, 80s and 90s, not least because of Arlen House and people like that, Pooh Beg. But um, I hadn't seen one myself and it was, there was 34 writers in it. It was an incredible collection. So this was behind Owen's head. And I said, God, you know, you, I loved that book. You, you really should do another one of those. And he just, without missing a beat, because publishers are very opportunistic, just said, you should do another one of those. And that's how it started. Um, and again, I just started with the idea, you decide what you're going to do. Living writers, dead writers. It was always going to be women as that collection had been cutting the night in two. And you just decide who, who who's going to be in it. What, are you, what kind of work do you want in a book? So in that case, it was women. So there was a very broad, already a broad kind of uh, ring around what, what was going to be in the book, but it was deciding on how far do you go back? Um, do you go up to the present? Do you commission work? Do you not? Um, uh, and uh, you know other factors that are also come into it which they did with this latest book is that you know it's money you can't clear every story you can't find the rights for every story you can't find the physical text of some stories you can't afford some stories so there's all those factors as well which is so you, you often don't necessarily get the book that you want in the end but I've been looking that I've come pretty close with with all of them. Mm. And do you think when you when you embarked on any of these anthologies did you think to yourself, okay, so I'm going to go to the library, I'm going to get out the books, I'm going to leaf through people's stories, or did you close your eyes and think, I remember that one, okay, I remember that one, I remember that one. You make a decision, a sort of pre-research decision based on what had most powerfully seared you. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think what I did a little bit differently with the long gaze back was, yeah, you have your wish list, you have your list of people that you wanted. And again, the, the, a big part of the premise of the long gaze back was that it was a book that was meant to uh, uh, illuminate voices that had been forgotten, uh, to illuminate um, people who sort of eat very easily fall in between the cracks. And what I also wanted to do, so my experience of looking at anthologies and the one I did in college, the, the Oxford book of the Irish Show Story, it's a very good collection edited by William Trevor, seven women. Uh, out of 39 stories and um, three men have two stories <laughs> in the book um, a little bit more galling to, to add that in um, and I, I, I so I always saw the same women appearing in anthologies always you could literally it was like a sort of literary blind bingo if I picked up one in the secondhand shop and I went okay who'll be in this and it was always you know your your mother Edna was often in there Somerville and Ross uh, Lavin Bowen, um, all of these writers, all brilliant, all of whom I've anthologized somewhere along the way, um, but always the same people. So I kind of wanted to include a handful of those women while, while also 
sometimes making a, a decision, which I've also done all the way along, is like not pick the most obvious story. I cheated with Elizabeth Bowen in The Long Days Back and that I did pick The Demon Lover because, again, I love spooky stories. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's one of her best stories. So I try to pick an atypical or a, a story by a writer that hadn't been very heavily anthologized. So things like Her Table Spread by Bowen is everywhere. You know, um, Lilacs by Mary Lavin is in practically every Irish mm. as you pick up. So I didn't want to do that. I wanted to try and pick a atypical stories. And, you know, in this new book, I have Frank O'Connor's um, A Man of the World, which is a brilliant story, but I didn't want to pick Guests of the Nation or the, the things that everybody knows. So I, I, that's, I think that's important to do that as well. Pick some classic work, some familiar work, some non-familiar, some surprising, and some work that people, by authors, people will just not know about. Mm. I mean, it is... It is a very, I mean, to, to put something like this together is uh, you're curating in the sense that you're directing people's attention to what it is you'd like them yeah. to pay attention to. But it's also archaeological because you're finding things that maybe people have known and now neglect or were buried and need to be disinterred and lifted up into the light, um, yeah. which is for you, which is more important the excavatory or the or the um, curatorial? I, I think you can't really have one without the other, to be honest. I think it's it's part of both. Um, and, and I do think there is, a, a friend said to me that it is like literary archaeology putting together a book like this. I, I remember with um, the glass shore trying to find, I had heard that... Um, Oh God, who's it? Is it Janet McNeil had written stories, short stories? That's, it was Janet McNeil. And... The, there are three or four collections in the National Library and of course go in, you can get three books out in an hour, it's a long day. Um, and when I found the stories, they were all stories for children or biblical stories for children and not the kind of thing I wanted to include in the anthology. And then later on, um, finding out that she had published stories in I think the Evening Press and the Belfast Telegraph, which have never been collated in a collection. So that's often a, another mm. problem when writers never published a full collection of their own. Unless they were anthologised, that work very quickly gets lost, goes missing. Um, so for me, it was it, I, I love the idea of bringing writers back because I do think it resurrects them. And I talk an awful lot about Nora Holt, who's in this collection and is in um, The Long Days Back, who only died in 1984, um, published 26 books, four of those are story collections, uh, and is, is literally forgotten, um, even though she's an incredible writer. And there's been a lot of, I think um, Persephone in the UK have one of her collections, There Were No Windows, sorry, one of her novels, There Were No Windows. And the thing about Nora is that she was more banned than John McGahern and and and, and Edna indeed, um, because the work was often quite transgressive, uh, was writing about things that didn't want to be written about. And the story in, in The Art of the Glimpse is a story essentially about sex work. And it was written in the 1930s in Ireland. And I think that's quite staggering to me. Um, it's, it comes from a, a collection of the same title, which is impossible to find. And Louise Kennedy, who's a writer originally from the North, um, who's also in this collection, found the Nora story in the long days back, kind of fell in love with the story, went off, started searching her and is doing a PhD on Nora, which she's about to hand in. And because a lot of people talked about that story from the long days back, New Island then reissued Cocktail Bar, the collection it came from. I wrote the introduction and uh, and another Nora book since. And th this is what can happen. Mm. Uh, uh, literally, acts of resurrection for a writer. They can be brought back from the dead. Uh, you know, Persephone, I think, have one of her, her There Were No Windows, one of her novels, a great novel about dementia, actually, uh, in print. But the rest of it's very hard to find. But New Island, you know, saw the response to the book. They reissued Cocktail Bar, her collection that I wrote the introduction for. Um, they wrote 
reissued another one of the novels, which uh, Louise wrote the introduction for. Um, so there's now a couple of Nora books that are out in the world that wouldn't have been had the long gaze back, not sort of literally brought her back from the dead. And I think that's the power of the anthology. You can give someone a writer um, that they wouldn't necessarily have heard of. I also think there are places to include work by writers that never wrote a whole collection or didn't write many short stories, but might have wrote a couple of great stories that can only really find a place in an anthology because there is no single collection mm. to put them in. So that's what I think, again, that's one of the kind of the, the, the works of the anthology. It's one of the kind of um, the utilities that it can actually do. It can achieve something like that, mm. I think. After The Long Gaze Back, you produced, again with New Island, a book called The Glass Shore, an anthology. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I think I, what I said about The Glass Shore is that, you know, books often beget books. And that's precisely what happened with The Glass Shore and that I did a lot of events for The Long Gaze Back. And it was the one city, one book for Dublin as well. But in the months after the book came out, I did some events in the north of Ireland. Um, and I, t- there was one in particular in the Lyric in Belfast and afterwards in the q and I, I joke about it being like, I am Spartacus. Um, every single person who's up to ask the question at the end said, this is a great book and we love this book, but where's our book? We don't have a book like this. And there had been a brilliant book edited by Ruth Carr in um, 1986, I think, um, which wasn't just short stories. It was short fiction, memoir, poetry. Um, but that, again, that had been published by a small press and there had not been very much, not in terms of an all-female collection. Um, and again, what happened when The Glass Shore came out is that the female line ended up being um, reprinted as an e-book. Uh, Dawn Sherrod Bado, who's a great academic, um, produced her own collection uh, of, of um, short work and short stories as well. So again, I, I feel all these books are all in conversation. They're all part of the same conversation. They're all links in the same chain. But The Glass Shore existed because, and, and again, I had my reservations because I'm not from the North and uh, I, I thought that maybe somebody from up there or a publisher from up there, but but nobody else was going to do it. So I talked to a lot of people, Northern writers and Northern academics and people at Queen's and yourself, Carlo, and, and asked people, you know, is, is, should I do this? And people just went, well, look, there probably won't be a book if you don't do it. So someone has to do it. And I'd rather there be something like this, a record, where again, you can give an audience a whole load of writers, some they'll know, some they won't, and stories they won't have heard of, or stories they might love and cherish. And that's always uh, the motivation. So they're very much companions, those two books. They're sort of two sides of the same coin in a way. Were you surprised by any of the uh, um, Northern Irish or North of Ireland material? Did it strike you as strange or...? (laughs) <laughs> what are you trying to say, Carlo? Um, what surprised me was that uh, I, I remember somebody jokingly saying to me, oh, you're, you're doing a, a story of, you know, a collection of stories from the north of Ireland. Will you not just get like, you know, a load of stories about the Troubles? And I said, I, I don't think so. Um, that's not what I'm expecting at all. And I'm also going to go back a couple of hundred years. So, you know, this, it's, you know, it's pre-1960s. So there's not going to be the Troubles, just different types of, of, of historical issues, maybe. Um, and I didn't think about that. I also didn't think about religion or, or that kind of, I knew I was going to get some stories. So some stories are very much rooted in, in the experience of what's gone on in the North since the 60s. Some are very much about that. But lots of stories are, are not about that. A lot of them are just about things that all stories are about, you know, life and death and relationships and geography and loss and all of those things. So, yeah, I mean, one, the, the start of the book, the older stories, and um, particularly uh, Margaret Barrington, who I've also included in this collection, um, a couple of the early stories are all quite supernatural and strange and and quite fantastical. And that, that surprised me because they're quite risk-taking and that they're quite out there. Um, and I, I, I like that about that, some of the early stories in the book. So that surprised me. Mm. And then we can move on to what we are here to discuss, which is... 
a book that you shouldn't drop on your foot. <laughs> the, well, I, I haven't dropped it on my foot. It's a very beautiful. It's a very beautiful book. Um, yeah. I mean, as an object on top of everything else, and it's a hundred stories. Yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, uh, uh, how you I, managed I, to get the copyright clearances for all of these? I my mind. Yeah, well, I, 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 I'll tell you why it's 100. It's very specific in that the, the publisher in this case, my first three anthologies are with New Island. This is Head of Zeus. Mm -hmm. So it's a UK publisher. And this is something they do. They do 100 story anthologies with the different themes. So they've done uh, they've done a great one on ghost stories. Frank Wynne has an excellent one on translation. Um, Sophie Hanna did a crime one. Victoria Hislop did women. Um, there's all sorts of, they've done a lot of them. So this was the, the, when, when Neil Belton came to me and said, um, we, we want to do an Irish one and we think you should do it. Um, and I always have amnesia about the amount of work that's involved. You forget mm -hmm. literally. And the, and the last ones were, you know, 20, 24 and, or sorry, 26 and, and 30 stories, whereas this is a hundred. So, but the, the, the thing is it was, it was presented to me as it was, this is meant to be a sort of a, a hundred great Irish stories or a hundred classic or a hundred Irish stories you should read. So that immediately means you don't have to start commissioning new work. Cause if I'd been doing that, I would have needed five years instead of two Mm -hmm. to do it and that's that's a big part of the commissioning takes up a lot of the time commissioning and looking for the work the literal digging around trying to find the actual text because loads of times I didn't and actually what one interesting connection between this book and, and the glass shore is I really really wanted to find uh, stor a story by a writer called Kathleen Coyle um, for the glass shore she's from Derry um, again never published a, a whole collection but she wrote a lot of stories for an American magazine um so I knew they existed and I have not been able to find those stories. And I've talked to a lot of academics. I had people hunting everywhere for them. And when I was working on this, again, I have, I've always, I have piles of lists. You accumulate a lot of things that you don't use or names you don't use or might go back to. So you already have a bit of a head start on yourself if you've anthologized before. And I was talking to an academic, Geraldine Meany, who was doing some work in the UK. And I said, there, there wouldn't be any chance in that library you're looking at just, you know, just while you're there. And she had a look and sure enough, um, there was a story by Kathleen Coyle. It's meant to be in something in the National Library that says it's there and it's not there. So I'm wondering if somebody made off of it in Dublin, that is. So, um, so that's the other thing. Sometimes as a record of something, you go to physically find the book, the text, the, the folder, and it isn't there. So I, so Kathleen Coyle has finally, finally got her into an anthology. She's in this book uh, and she's a, a wonderful writer. I, I wish someone would find the other 40 because then you'd probably get two collections of her stories. Mm. Do you find the whole business of obtaining copyright, obtaining permissions, which, um, is it a finagling, devilish process? I am very lucky to say that somebody in Head of Zeus does that for me. But then what I do is if I find, and some stories come from older collections or older anthologies that you're photographing when you're allowed to in the National mm. Library, mm. Um, you're photographing the story, the year, the copyright page. If it's in an anthology, it's who is the original publisher. So I, I'm always very careful in terms of cataloging and taking notes because when I, I've learned very terribly, that if you don't do that, you give yourself twice the work if you have to go mm. back and do it again or the same work you have to retread the same path. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm quite consummate about knowing where I find things, but somebody else, thankfully, because I need a long time. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. It can be very difficult to find. And again, there are some stories in this book uh, that I couldn't use. Sorry, that are not in this book that I couldn't use because we just couldn't, couldn't find, couldn't clear and decided because some of the, the writers were not that unknown, we would, yeah. we would take the chance, you know, down the road. I mean, it's a, it, the book is 856 pages, I think. It's, yeah. a, I mean, it's an enormous undertaking. When, when you set about organising your hundred, did you have to reimmerse yourself? Did you have to go back, say, to, I don't know, Joyce? I don't, yes, perhaps, and look and think. Or did you have things that you already knew you wanted to put in? 
A bit of both, actually, I'd say. And again, I you imagine what a, what a hundred can be. And there's two ways of doing that. You can imagine a hundred highly canonical, traditional, what will people think will be in this book? And that's great. So you, so you have that list. And then you have a, how could I shake this up? How could I make this different? And how does it, this book has to look not just like a book in and of itself, but a book that's not like all the other ones. There's no point in me making an anthology that looks like it was published in 1975 or 1995. It has to look like a book that's published now. It has to reflect, as all anthologies do, um, the current climate. Uh, They can act as a a way of taking the temperature of what's going on in the world. Um, And I think that's a really important part of the anthology. It must be as current as it can be, uh, you know, when you work on it and then it comes out two years later. But yeah, so what I did is I have a lot of anthologies in the house. I tend to not be able to if I see one somewhere, especially in secondhand shops, I pick them up. I have an awful lot from all over the world. I have themed ones. I have science fiction ones, queer anthologies, Brazilian short stories. I have whatever. So I had a lot of stuff here. So whenever I hit a, a glitch where I couldn't find, I was waiting for a book through it. it, it the, the Irish libraries of Dublin and the Irish public library systems are incredible for interlibrary loans. They did a lot of that. Pierce Street have a, an Irish um, study section that you can go in and read like the National Library. So I use that a lot and the National Library. So anytime I, I was very kind of... Uh, very careful with my time and that when I hit a glitch and I couldn't get to the National Library I'll go write a stuff at home I can read I have a lot you know I have my three volumes of uh, Elizabeth Bowen stories or my um, Mary Lavin box set that I have so I would read everything and I did go back and I, I it's you know I, I felt that you have to go back and do the work again again because I've read so many over the years you remember the things you remember so you don't have to go back and read stuff but I so as somebody said to me this week there's a lot of information about the short story in your brain and, and cumulatively there is yeah but I wanted to go back and read and it's always a joy to go back and you know somebody said to me last week it was the right the, the, the writer Jimmy McGovern who, who writes for television said to me do you, did you did you pick the dead and I said the dead's my favorite story he said but in a book like this it's like 60 pages so that's another um mm caveat about that you can't always fit the story that you want because if they're too long it's not going to work in, it, in an already very massive book like this mm. so it's obviously it's not the dead but yeah so there's an element of, of of deciding what your list of 100 will be and then how you can shake that up so it doesn't look canonical or because again I, do, I think anthologies are of their time but can go out of date very quickly so you have to try and make it as current uh, as you can um, but Joyce was always going to be in there always yeah as, as was Lavin and Bowen uh, and and you know Frank O'Connor and Sean O'Fallon and all these these greats um, of the form. What does the book tell us? What What is the temperature reading that it's giving us? Um, I, it's telling us, I hope, um, here are a hundred short stories you should read and lots of them you'll know and lots of them you might have studied in school or in college or you'll have heard them in a radio adaptation or you'll know the writer's name even if you haven't read the story. But look over here. There's a load of other stories by writers that you probably don't know or that are just emerging or that don't necessarily um, don't reflect what you think the Irish story is. Because for a long time, I think we know the Irish story looked and, and smelt and tasted a certain way. You know, it was often parochial. It was often rural, uh, not in Joyce's case, obviously, um, you know, priests and fields and immigration and alcoholism and many children and families and, and terrible love and not being able to have what you wanted and somebody sailing on the ship tomorrow. A lot of that. Um, and some of those stories I love. And there's lots of them in this book. But there's lots of different ways. And I think the, the, the short story is a very evolving form. And it's evolved to, to, to take into account what's also changed in Ireland historically, politically, economically. Um, also, as you know, we have a new Ireland and not everybody living here looks, you know, looks like me or you anymore, which is a really good thing in my view. It's, we were very monotheistic and very monocultural for a long time. And I wanted to sort of um, include some of those voices. Um, there's a lot of writers in the book. And I, I think specifically of Emma O'Donoghue and Colin Dubin, 
who were writing and telling queer and LGBT stories, um, even at a time when it still wasn't necessarily the thing that you talked about very much. And there certainly was, were, you know, going back even pre-column on, on Emma, there, it, it wasn't necessarily the kind of anthology that you, that you saw. You didn't see that kind of work. So I wanted to include, um, and genre, I think, is a word that I'm really interested in. I find it can be considered a dirty word, that if, if something isn't literary and highbrow and, and um and again, all those words are awful words. It's like it's good and bad writing, really. Um, but I wanted to sort of look, as I say, my own kind of love of the, of the kind of the gothic, the supernatural and um, the ghost story. So there's quite a few stories that and often by people you wouldn't expect Jennifer Johnston writing a ghost story, Roddy Doyle writing a ghost story uh, in this collection. So and obviously, again, geographically, I wanted to make sure there was a lot of writers represented from from the north of Ireland, whether you go six counties or nine counties. So you can put Lima Flaherty and um, Margaret Barrington and people like that in. So. I, I hope it does seem to be kind of up to date. I mean, one of the story, one of the writers, Chiamaka Emi Amadi, who's just been longlisted for the short story award in the in the uh, Irish Book Awards because her story is from this book has been nominated. And again, she's been living here, and I, I see her as an Irish writer. I see her as whether people call that new Irish or not, but the work is is incredible. And I think I don't want to read the same kind of stories forever. I don't know about you. Um, I, I embrace the newness and I think we need the, a new new forms, not even not even the kind of 10 pages or the chronological story. You know, Wendy mm. Erskine's story is, is written in fragments, 77 fragments to be exact. Mm. And somebody like that is pushing the shape and form and elasticity of the short story. I think um, I, that's another thing I like about the form. It's, it's like the essay, very bendy. You can do a lot with it. Mm. Why is it? Well, this is a question in two parts. Why is the short story associated with Ireland? And why is the short story, argue, why do people say it's a peculiar, it's something that people in Ireland have a peculiar talent for? Um, there's probably lots of theories. I think we've, we've always been a land of writers and scribes, you know, if you're going back to the, right back to the Book of Kells, and um, we've been writing things down and telling stories, even if they're biblical ones in that sense. Um, a few years ago, when I used to work in TV, I interviewed uh, the, the Maori writer, uh, Uti Aimahara, uh, who wrote Whale Rider, people will probably know him for, and we had a long conversation. And he said, I, I think the Maori are like the Irish, you know, a small a group of people who had their own language or in a, and, but lived in a very storytelling, folkloric, oral culture. And he said, I'm, I'm convinced that's why not just that we're storytellers and writers, but that we're short storytellers and writers. Because when you think about it, the idea of going kaleying and storytelling and moving from house to house, which used to happen a lot in Ireland, you had to keep the whole story in your head. So you weren't going to do that with a novel, but you could probably do it with something that took you 20 minutes to tell. Um, and I think we're a very verbal culture. I think we're the kind of culture, you know, who talk to everybody, talk to people at the bus stop or used to, or I still do. Um, I think we're just, we're a very extrovert, um, communicative. Uh, I think we're also a culture that revels in language. This, you know, this, you can tell somebody that you went to the shop for milk and that, or you can make that story last 10 minutes if you like. And I think that's just part of our culture is that we're, we're, we're verbal, we're expressive and we, we kind of really glory in language. And I think that does come from her. Iberno-English culture, the fact that we, the, the duality in the language, the split in the language, the moving away mm. from, you know, a, a coin Um So I think that's a big part of it too. I've sometimes wondered whether the short story isn't the perfect form for covering lies and deception. Oh, tell me more. That's an interesting I, I, I think, you know, two, three, four, five thousand words is a perfect word vessel for carrying the anatomization, the excavation of deception and lies. 
Um, and um, and I think that, I mean, a lot of the stories in, in all of the collections concern that. The other thing, we were talking about what does an anthology do for one? Um, obviously, one wants to read something that isn't typical. One wants to be surprised. It's, 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 you're being given nourishment in an unexpected order and nourishment, you have stories butted up against each other, which you, therefore you get surprising conjunctions. So it kind of stirs you up and this, this um, you know, this is a rare pleasure. But also reading, um, reading The Art of the Glimpse, I was very surprised suddenly to encounter things that I'd forgotten. Or it's not that I'd forgotten them, I, I, they hadn't gone away. They were My sort gosh. of, well, like cancer. The McCabe story about sectarianism, which is set in the 70s yeah. or the 80s. But, you know, as if you live here in where I live in northern or the north of Ireland, you know, um, the war may be over, but um, I mean, hostilities have ceased, but this does not mean amity. And I suddenly I was reading the McCabe story and I thought, oh, God, I remember all this. Jeepers, it's so, and yet I'd forgotten it as well. Yeah. I kind of put it out of my mind. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. I think what, what the, the short story is also good, good. And this, research, this refers back to the title, which is The Art of the Glimpse, which is what William Trevor, how William Trevor, who's in the book, described another writer in the book, um, Margaret Barrington. He described the, her skill for the short story as The Art of the Glimpse. And that's what a short story can also do. It can it's very reactive form. So you could, if something, if you decided that you wanted to write a short story about Donald Trump very recently saying that he wouldn't necessarily agree to leaving the White House if he didn't get the, the votes that he needed to stay, you could write a short story about that today. If you wrote a novel and it took you three years, it wouldn't be so fresh, whatever. So hmm. that's another thing. It's a very reactive form. It's often used for, for very political reasons, I think. Um, to, to uh, And I think that that's what cancer actually does, that story. And, and the weird thing about cancer, and I think, again, when you just mentioned there, and it's, I don't know if that's what you're alluding to, but there are lots of moments in the book where two stories that are several pages or, or hundreds of pages apart in the book are often extremely alike. And I didn't realise it until the book was put together or other people who've started reading the book have said it to me. And I, I what I find about the McCabe story, there is something about that going back in time, as you said, you almost have a shudder reading that story. And I was a lot younger. I, I was alive in the 70s. I remember what the news and the stories of booby traps and soldiers. And it's very chilling to read it. And you kind of read it with those almost kind of sense of, I'm glad it's not like that anymore. As you say, it isn't still perfect. There's still a lot of healing and trauma and recovery to be done, but there, there, there aren't the soldiers on the street. You know, there aren't the checkpoints. Mm. Um, and I find that the Burn of a Claverty story, the two of them are very similar. I mm. think the Burn Walking the Dog, which mm. is a superb story. I think, were you reading that as well? Mm. Yeah. 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 It's, they, it's funny. There's nothing, there's nothing comic about trauma and difficult situations. And yet when you read that, it's, it's about a man who stopped with his dog and, and two lads pull up in the car and go get into the car. You know, they're kind of being disappeared. He didn't know what was going to happen, but the dog has to go with them. And there's loads of story moments in a story, which is a story of pure terror because the man doesn't know if they're, they're threatening to kill him. He's been told, if you don't do this, I'll kill you. If you do that, I'll kill you. 
And yet there's loads of moments in the story that are incredibly comic. And that's not to suggest anything about the Troubles is comic at all. It isn't. But it's the, the Bequetting thing, of, you know, the, the graveside and the banana skin, you know, these two weird kind of light and dark things so working so well together in the one story. And that's a kind of that's the skill of, McCla- of, of Bernard McClafty to be able to make that very frightening, very terrifying story have little moments where you are actually laughing a little bit because they're asking his name to figure out where he's come from. They're asking to see the alphabet uh, to see if he says H or H. Yeah. If they can figure out if he's a Protestant or and they actually eventually just go, tell us, are you Protestant or Catholic? Um, but it's, it's funny but terrifying, you know. And again, we're, we're not at that point anymore, thankfully, in the North. What's so interesting about the Bernard McClaverty story is that um, you never know who the what the what the confessional orientation of the two men who are out looking for someone to kill. Yep. They, they, they have to produce a body. And there's something about the way that that story conjures up a kind of not knowing, really. You're not really able to fix what's going on. And you couldn't, I mean, you're absolutely right, you couldn't make a novel about that. No. But by goodness, you can do that. You can do a 3,000-word story that shows what it's like to be bewildered because you have no idea what's going on. Um, I, I think I, I've mentioned before as well that Philip Henshaw has edited the Penguin book of the of the British short story, and he made a really interesting point in the introduction to that as well. That he said people like Dickens and Somerset Maugham, apart from the fact that they were getting often the equivalent of a doctor's salary in the nineteen twenties for one short story, often used the short story as a place where they could try all their weird stuff out. So they they write their sci fi or their alien planet stuff or their mm. you know um, creepy gothic or their fantasy or whatever it was, and it was it was a bit of so it can be a place of experimentation and risk taking because you know Dickens might publisher might just go there's no way I'm going to publish your weird sci fi book but you know knock yourself out if you want to submit a short story to the Strand or whatever it is and that's another thing that he said that you find often writers will take a break from their own uh canon their own usual concerns and themes and go off and try something a bit more unusual with the short story so again i tried to find some of those, those kind of stories for, for this kind of book and i like the idea that it can be a place where you, you wouldn't do it anywhere else but you might do it in the short story and that makes it an exciting form for me as well for that reason why are you so attracted to um the supernatural I don't know. I just I, that I, is a I, definite recurring thing. Yeah, there's there's there is a lot of it in here, and there is a lot in the glass shore as well. I maybe it's just going back to reading all those uh, uh, ghostly tales and Alfred Hitchcock. And again, I'm I'm not mad on horror films as it is. It's more that I like. I always like the kind of psychological, the things that you don't necessarily know. I don't like slasher or gore, but I like mm. the things that kind of will make will leave you thinking, and you just go, well, well, I don't actually know what happened. And I I write in constellations about my great grandmother and my grandmother are very psychic and, and there's a sort of psychic scene in the matrilineal side of my family and I'm interested in that stuff even though I'm a completely rationalist and scientific person I can't explain some things that have happened um but I I the reason I, I like it is because they're so multifaceted and open-ended that I'll read something and you'll read something and we might completely have a different um interpretation of what that story is uh, the, the brilliant demon lover by Elizabeth Bowen that's in the long days back I've taught that with students and you wouldn't believe the different responses to the end you know people who think a whole it's about the war it's madness it's post-traumatic you know uh, ptsd and um, she's mad and um, it is a ghost the ghost has abducted her like this oh there's a whole array and i like that idea that you can have a multiple different type type of responses and interpretations of a ghost story and a supernatural story you can't really do that with the bernard mcclafferty or or with cancer by eugene mccabe but you can do it with supernatural stories so mm. maybe that's why i like it it's the multiplicity of it are you um or were you ever in the process of putting 
the anthology together, impatient with the well-made story. Did you find yourself thinking, mm, here we go, first an introduction, set the scene, here's the characters, tick them off, here's their subtext. Whereas a story like Wendy Erskine's story yeah. is, is, is 77 short snippets about a Sid Barrett-esque yeah. um, uh, savant genius pop star catastrophe, completely different to anything else. And I think an outstanding story. But I just wondered whether, I asked yeah. that question because Constellations is clearly the, um, the, the creation of a modern intelligence. You know, it's, it's um, you're gathering things together, it's essayistic, it's impressionistic, you not you're not ruthlessly chronological, you move around, um, you bring all sorts of different things in. You're quite happy to stop narrating something about yourself and talk about um, a painter or something in history. And then, you know, it's, got many different strands all ingeniously knitted together, but it's, yeah. it's modern. Whereas a lot of, you know, the Irish story is not many strands knitted together. It's quite, you know, did yeah. you get irritated? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say irritated because again, I, I think there's, there has to be scope, especially if you love and are as committed to the short story as I am to, to embrace the, the, the variety of it. And again, I love a small elegiac William Trevor story as much as the next man or woman. Uh, as the same with Frank O'Connor or Lima Flaherty, even though Lima Flaherty's story is, is insane. It's also set in a hospital, which is another reason why I picked it, a, a kind of crazy comic story in a hospital. And you don't get many of them. But I, I think, yeah, I know what you mean. And I, I, one thing that I... I, I, I'm quite deliberate about is including not just the canonical well-known writers that you'll know from the past, but also people like, you know, uh, Jane Barlow or Elizabeth Cullinan that people won't know. And they'll think that they're quiet, typical Irish stories. And there's nothing wrong with those stories. And I feel like there has been a move in the last 10, 20 years towards a certain type of story, often veering towards the comic and um, the very chatty, um, talky kind of story, a lot of dialogue. Um, yeah. and, 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 and there's a lot of those stories in here too by some of those brilliant writers but there's nothing wrong with thinking that that you know Louise Kennedy for example said to me I read the Bernard McLaughlin or the, I read the Bernard, Benedict Kiley story and she said it was so sinister and creepy and that was I, I was expecting and again I think people make assumptions about what kind of writer Ben Kiley is and was and I'm always a, a huge fan of his work it's so musical there's such a musicality to him but that's a really sinister story in the book and, she, and Louise said I'd read three or four stories about terrible men in a row in the book and they were all very good but very different so I think we have to be very careful not to go, I only like the new kind of stories that are being published in all the literary journals, all of which are great, many appear in this book, but you have to not forget, you have to not have a kind of amnesia about the fact that it was okay to write a beautiful story about a sad elderly man who lived on a farm and that's what the story is about because those stories have meaning, they resonate, they're universal as well um, and some of them are totally unforgettable. So I, I, I'm a fan of both and I don't mind the start, middle and end and I don't mind a story that is very intrinsically and, and traditionally, thematically Irish, that's fine by me as well. But it's important to me that the book has has both, and it does. Mm. But maybe some readers will be impatient, going, oh, I don't want this crusty old story from the 1920s about a farm. I want some, I want somebody to make me laugh for 10 pages. And that's that's okay too. Because um, not everybody likes 100 stories in a 100-story anthology. And that's I expect nothing less. You just mentioned Elizabeth Cullinan. Yeah. That's how she wrote a story called A Swim. I was very struck by that story. Um you also mentioned in the biographical introduction that she was, um, she used to type up Mr. Updike, that's John Updike's stories. I mean, yeah. oh my goodness me, um, that was a labour. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, his punctuation is so fiendish. 
Um, how did you come across Elizabeth Cullinan? She's remarkable. Yeah, she, again, I, I, whenever I'm embarking on this work, and one thing I say all the time is that lots of writers don't die uh, on the page because of academics. And academics and students and PhD students and professors teaching work by writers um, helps to keep them alive. And I've, I always have a, lot, have a network of academics I talk to, we chat about short stories anyway, even when I'm not working on this. So it was an academic who suggested Elizabeth Cullinan to me and I, I immediately dove into what I can find. There are only two collections, a few novels, um, published a lot of stories in The New Yorker in the 1970s and only died earlier this year. Um, the interesting thing about that story, it's, it's about a, a day trip to house with a man. It's about a date. It's about a swim. It's about a not very good date. Um, no, it's a man, terrible date. The man in the story is another writer in the book. Um, but I won't tell you who it is. You'd probably have to try and figure it out yourself. So so there's a writer that features twice in this book, once in his own right and once in Elizabeth Cullen's, uh, Cullinan's story as, as her bad date. So, but it's a wonderful story. And again, that's a traditional start at the start. But it's, again, it's the creeping sense of, of, of dread and the fact that you wanted to work for them and you feel like it's not and you already feel at the start that it's not going to but it's the way she sort of tells the story and tries to imagine and superimpose her own kind of feelings onto the situation but while being very aware of his uh, not, not not charitableness that's not the word that he, he just he can't give her what she needs and she kind of knows that anyway but it doesn't stop her not going to hope that there'd be no story Mm. But it's a very, yeah, it's a very kind of melancholic and, and very atmospheric story. And I felt I was wandering around house while I read it. They're not going to make each other happy. No, and, no. and I believe in real life they didn't either. <laughs> no. So. Um, it's like a little short Bergman film, um, yeah. se searing and bleak. Maybe, no. maybe a prize, a money prize should be offered to uh, people to identify. <laughs> are you going to, um, to identify the writer in A Swim? Are you, um, are you done with anthologization? Are you worn out by it? Is it wrung you dry? In terms of the Irish short story, for, for now, I will say yes. What I will tell you is that um, I am working on another anthology that's not fiction. It's also not, it's not, um, it has a very specific theme, put it that way. And I'm a co-editor with somebody that I really admire who isn't a writer. And um, that's supposed to be coming out in 2022. So I'm working a bit on that. I have nearly everybody that we want to have in it, but it's still not quite there. Um, and I have to contribute something myself to it. So that's that will be an anthology technique, but not this kind of anthology. So yeah, after that, no, I, I but it's it's like it's like childbirth, Carly. You kind of you forget it. Yes, and then I you know. Go, yeah, you know, like yeah. there's no bother at all. And then you go back to it and go, Oh god, I forgot how much work this was. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, I so I will say for now. No. Oh, and also, you know, because I, I ha I've edited so many, I, I, I want someone else to do it so I can have the joy of sitting down with a glass of wine and reading it and not have to do all the work. And also because every anthologist has their own biases and subjectivity and taste. So I'd like someone else to kind of shape a book and it would be very different to mine probably. And I, I, I love that idea of seeing another book. So unless you want to do it, Carlo, I mean, you've got a lot of knowledge. You've read an awful lot. <laughs> um, uh, I have. Yes. Yes, I, of course I will. I shall, <laughs> I, shall, I shall put it in the diary for next week. That's legally um, binding now. You've said it, so it's legally binding. We've been talking about, we've been talking for an hour. Uh, we've been talking about the art of a glimpse and um, the guest is Sinead Gleeson. And those of you who are listening to this podcast, I would suggest that you buy several copies for Christmas. I mean, it is a really, really, really remarkable book. Um, it's, it's like it's, it's so big. heavy. 
It yeah. can be a lovely ribbon, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, we're, we're all living, as we know, through terrible, strange and anxious times. And if the weather's going to turn and it's going to get colder, it is the thing that might get you through the winter. If you read a couple every day, it, and it'll keep you going. Um, and, and that's the joy of an anthology. You don't have to like everything, but you'll have only spent 10 pages in one writer's company and then you're on to the next thing. And you can literally go from, you know, hot and a bad date with Elizabeth Cullen and on to, you know, uh, living in, in a caravan in um, in Gort, as as mm. Kevin Barry's brilliant story, the girls and the dogs does. So you 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 they transport you. You can be t- different times, geographic places. You can be in relationships. You can be in war situations. You can be in all sorts of places. And that's what I love the fact that you ne- you don't know what you're going to get when you end one story and flip over to the next page. That's the, one of the things I love about them: the surprise element. I think we should also emphasise that this is a book with very big, generous gullies. So when you turn the page, you yeah. can see all the words. I know that sounds like what a Daily Telegraph reader <laughs> who wears trousers with elasticated waistbands would say, but um, it is true. You know, it, 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 it's, it's an object which has been created intelligently and is a pleasure to read, both because of the way it is made and because of the content you've selected. Yeah, Head of Zeus have done a, a beautiful job, and the, the cover is uh, a guy called Owen Gent who did the who's, who did the cover of Donal Ryan's latest novel actually as well. He's a beautiful illustrator, so it's it's a lovely tactile object. And I, I am, if you know, if I, if I'm a modern reader in one way, I don't own a Kindle. I don't want to read things online. I like spines. I like secondhand bookshops. I like putting my bookmark in. I I don't like to read digitally unless I have to for work for with PDFs. But otherwise, I will I resist. I'll rage against the dying of the light. Carla, when it comes to a physical book. So this is the thing, as you say, you can sit down and read a couple a day. You can skip, you can go back and forth. You don't have to read it in the way. I've laid it out alphabetically, but you can read it whatever way you like. Most of the work was done by you. Sinead Gleeson, thank you very, 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 very much. Thank you, Carlo. Thanks to the uh, London Irish Arts Centre.